Greetings and welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. This is a special episode of the podcast. For today, you will be able to join my class and I in conversation with my friend Vincent Okwicheme. Vincent is a lawyer and a business person. He's a proud father and husband. He's a man of the world. And I have been truly lucky to have him join my students year after year, sharing with them his hard-earned wisdom. Of course, conditions being what they are here in 2021, we took this conversation online, and so it is my pleasure to be able to share with you the dialogue that my students and Vincent shared. We cover a lot of terrain about Nigeria, from law and corruption, to ethnicity and religion, to the federal-state balance, just to name a few. Whether you're a student, a new teacher, or a veteran of this course, you'll get a lot out of this conversation, because Vincent is teeming with perspective. So please join my beloved quarantines and I in conversation with my pal, Vincent. Vincent Okuchemi, welcome to the AP Comparative Government Podcast. It is an honor to have you, and may I say, it is indeed a pleasure to see you. You have uh, lived a rich and uh, robust life. You're a man of the world. So if nothing else, for the sake of the story, let's start from the beginning. Tell us what it was like growing up in Delta State, and Tell us everything you're willing to tell us about your life, after which we will pepper you with questions. Sir. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be here as well. We're on Zoom because of the coronavirus. Before then, I used to come into the class at uh, the JFK to speak directly to the students. But uh, I guess we're forced to do this now. Yes, I was uh, born in Nigeria, a town called Ibadan uh, in southwestern Nigeria. I grew up in Benin, mostly in the midwestern part of Nigeria, where I went to primary school and uh, secondary school, what you call high school here. Uh, In between, the Nigerian Civil War started, so we had to relocate to another town where my grandmother lived. But for the most part, I grew up in Benin. I went to boarding school. It was uh, popular in those days to go to boarding school. We, we had the, we ran the British system. So I was in boarding school for uh, many years. School is pretty relaxed these days. In boarding school, it was tough. You know, you got whipped. You got, uh, you had to wake up early. You had to do manual punishment. Uh, there was a lot of discipline. But we learned a lot as well. Uh, I think we learned to be better human beings, better citizens, uh, disciplined. Uh, after that, I went to the University of Lagos, uh, where I did a Bachelor of Laws degree in the mid to late 70s. After that, I uh, went to the Nigerian Law School for a year. After that, uh, in Nigeria, there's a compulsory National Youth Service Corps scheme for all graduates where you are entitled to work uh, for government compulsorily for one year in uh, 
different fields. Some people teach in primary schools, some people teach in secondary schools, some people work in government ministries. I did mine in northern Nigeria, not central Nigeria, a place called Kaduna, with the Legal Aid Council. After that, uh, I worked for a law firm in Lagos for one year, and then what proceeded to Tulane University in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, in the U.S., to do a Master of Laws. My first Master of Laws, that's between 82 and 83. After that, I went for another year, 83, 84, to the University of Cambridge in England to do a second Master's in Law. After that Master's, I returned to Nigeria and was a teacher at uh, the Faculty of Law of the University of Benin for a number of years, four to five years. I went over to Canada to the University of Alberta, spent another year there, and subsequently moved to the United States again in the early 90s, uh, worked for a law firm in New York for about two years. And then I returned to Nigeria to join uh, Shell, Shell Oil Nigeria Limited, where I worked for uh, over 15 years. In Shell, I, I joined as a lawyer originally, but subsequently I moved on to different roles. I was once in charge of uh, uh, oil spill cleanups and uh, compensation to for property damage, oil damage, etc., to shell communities. Then I worked as a head of security when the security situation in Nigeria became uh, quite challenging with all kinds of. Uh, that's when you had the Niger Delta militants uh, begin to foment uh, trouble, blow up pipelines uh, and stuff like that. My last job in Shell was as a public relations and brand manager. That was the last thing I did before I decided it was time to quit. So since then, I've been retired since 2010. At a fairly young age, I think, uh, just around 50 or slightly younger. And uh, what do I do now? Not too much. Uh, I'm also an arbitrator. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of public interest law now, a lot of um, um, non-partisan discussions relating to Nigerian affairs. We do a lot of that on Zoom, on WhatsApp, and uh, offering advice to various delegations on uh, how to decentralize Nigeria properly. And then my, my wife and I, my wife especially, we, we run a small uh, business in Nigeria, furniture, and furniture supplies. Uh, so that's, that's our story. I live in Nigeria mostly. I've been, uh, I come and go. So yeah, thanks. That's, uh, that's my story in a nutshell. I know how uncomfortable or awkward it could be to walk us through your life story, but I'm grateful that you did. And if for no other reason, uh, my students here can appreciate how accomplished if not totally overstudied, you are a lifelong student. And that's one of the things I like about you most. And it's been a pleasure to fill in some of the gaps in those stories over the years. You and I have had the pleasure of hanging out and drinking beer. And what you didn't say, Vincent, is, and I know he wouldn't say this because he's a humble man. Yeah. The man can cook. He's got some serious chops in the kitchen. And I, perhaps from this audience, we'll get some... Uh, questions about food and culture and the like. I want my students here to know 
that in, in addition to being earnest and honest and decent and hardworking, I think Vincent's pretty game. He's pretty open to your questions. So without further ado, I want to offer any of you in any order the opportunity to ask the man of the hour questions about Nigerian life, culture, and politics. Who's going to kick this thing off? So I, two days ago with my family, um, watched The Half of the Sun, I think was the name. It's a movie about the Biafra War, uh, Adichie. And so I was wondering of what importance, like the concept of Biafra is to like contemporary Igbos today. Like what role, does it play any role? Or if it does, like, is it looked upon sort of as like the, what could have been? Yeah, interesting question. Um, As you may be aware now, there's a a new agitation for Biafra as a whole group of, uh, if you like, separatists who have brought Biafra to the fore again. You know, Nigeria is uh, quite culturally and ethnically diverse, and there's a lot of tension from time to time between different ethnic groups. And a lot of people from the southeastern part of Nigeria, which basically was where Biafra, the core of Biafra, well, it included uh, some south of south states like Port Harcourt and stuff. But the core of it was the Igbo-speaking area in uh, southeastern Nigeria. And a lot of them think that since uh, the Civil War ended, the Igbos uh, have not been treated particularly fairly uh, in, the, in the Nigerian scheme of things. They mention uh, top... Uh, government appointments that exclude uh, the Igbo-speaking people from that part of Nigeria now that was known as Biafra then. And so they they feel that uh, they are not getting their fair share, if you like, of the national cake. So yes, there's a whole group of people now talking of uh, forming a Biafra fresh. Um, so that's there, and it's causing a lot of tension. Uh, from, from time to time, there have been uh, agitations and soldiers and police sent in to crush, uh, if you like, crush is a little strong, but to put down, uh, suppose, rioters or people agitating for Biafra. So uh, Biafra is back in the national consciousness. I think that's that's the way to, to answer the question, yes. Do you have an opinion about what is to be done vis-a-vis the tense Biafran situation in 2021? Yes, I think... Uh, the, the the way to diffuse the Biafran thing is to decentralize the federation. You've heard that the, the Nigerian center is all, is all powerful, and that's as a result of military rule that over-centralized power in uh, Abuja and in the hands of the president of Nigeria. Before uh, the military uh, came, made its first... Uh, Uh, inroad into power in 1966. We had a federal system with uh, very powerful regions, uh, federalism, real federalism, and and the regions had uh, a lot of power on their own to do different things. Don't forget it's a diverse nation, so there are going to be tensions when you over-centralize power in in a federal government. Depending on who's in charge of the federal government, like now, we have a house of man from the north, so all that tribal groups feel left out. So I think the way to diffuse Biafra and to uh, and it's not just Biafra now, by the way, in the south, south, the oil producing regions, many states, the middle belt are calling for 
decentralization of power. In other words, giving them more, more fiscal federalism is what we call it, making the states a little more powerful so they can do more things. Now we have an exclusive legislative list that gives about 80 items to the federal government, even including uh, primary school education, which is quite ridiculous. Uh, local communities, local government, et cetera, in, my, in our view, should be responsible for little things like markets, uh, primary education, not the center. The center is too far removed from local communities and they can't handle these things effectively. So I think that's part of what's causing the agitation for Biafra. And even though there is Biafra, there is a whole movement in the south-south, in the middle belt, in some parts of the north. So there's a lot of tension now. And I think the way to get Biafra in the, on the back burner is to give more power to those regions so that they can do the kinds of things they, they, they want to do. Thank you, Vincent. Who's next? Hi. Hi. Um, knowing that there's so much corruption in the Nigerian system and even in everyday life, I was curious, what drew you to study law in Nigeria? Why did I choose to study law? Yeah, but like in the context of that, there's so much corruption in the system, in the legal system, but also everyday life. Like, is, did, did that have any role to play in your decision to study law? Oh, I see. No, not really. No, I wanted to study political science first. My dad wanted me to be an accountant, I think, chartered accountant. You know, Nigerian parents are very strict. When you are in, uh, before you are born, they've already leveled you a doctor <laughs> in, this, in, in your mother's tummy, uh, a lawyer, an accountant. But anyway, my dad wanted me to be an accountant, but I, I didn't want to be an accountant. So I actually went to university to read political science. And then one of my teachers at the time said, your, your grades are fairly good. Uh, we still have some openings in law. Do you want to read law? And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So that was it. I think that was largely it. I don't, and, and quite frankly, even though Nigeria has been, uh, is known as a bastion of corruption, when I went to university in those days in the 70s, I know it wasn't that bad. You know, it, it was there, but it wasn't... Uh, it didn't dominate national life. You know, you found a little clerk here who took a little bribe from you to get your file here. But the level of, uh, of, of uh, theft in government wasn't as it was, uh, wasn't as it is today. So, no, there was, there, was no, there was no connection. Can I ask, do you see a turning point or what are the main turning points from like a comparatively less corrupt Nigeria in the 70s to what we have now, which is one of the most corrupt countries on the planet? Yes, I, well, a lot of people would like to blame the military. I think in many ways, the military brought a certain reckless attitude to government, you know, and, and, and destroyed a lot of the... Um, a lot of those processes that you know that you used to filter corruption, you know, the procurement system, the bidding system, you know, and they brought cronyism and stuff like that. So I think over time, corruption has been growing. Now, with the political elite who have been substituted for a military elite, don't forget our first. Uh, civilian head of state in 1999 was a former military general, former military head of state. So we've just translated soldiers into uh, who have uh, transformed into civilians. It's a very complex issue. And don't forget now that uh, 
resources are dwindling. The population is growing. The, the, the competition for office and scarce resources is getting fiercer. And those things drive corruption. And don't forget, corruption is also aided by the, the developed countries. I mean, most of, a lot of money is in England, in property, in banks. Nobody's doing anything about it. To shout, uh, Nigeria is corrupt. Get rid of corruption in Nigeria. But where's the money going? It's going to foreign banks. It's going to foreign property. Uh, you know, you can buy land in England or a house in England without re using your real name. You know, you, all you need to do is uh, incorporate an offshore company and stuff like that. So... Corruption is much deeper than just saying Nigeria is corrupt. It's a corrupt system around the world. This guy is London money through international banks based in London, based in Frankfurt, based in New York. So how, how are we going to tackle this uh, collectively? Uh, there's transparency international these days that is trying, but it's going to be tough. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a collective fight. It's, it's like a pandemic, if you like. Thanks, Vincent. Who's next? Mr. Lazar held a podcast for our class that was, I think, entitled The Curse of Black Gold. And you mentioned that you'd worked for Shell. So since you applied for a job there, do you see inherent value in the oil industry in Nigeria? I've listened to Mr. Lazar's podcast, yes. Again, the, the question of oil, oil, oil companies, oil resources in Nigeria is a very complex one, quite frankly. Um, I worked for Shell. I was also involved in uh, spills and cleanups and, and stuff like that. You know, you, you, you usually behave in a certain way based on the laws of the land or the ways the laws are enforced. Now, if you say a country is corrupt, don't forget it means it, 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 that country's government officials, regulators will find it difficult to hold oil companies and other operators there to account the way Shell will behave in the Netherlands, for instance, uh, will be different from the way to operate in Nigeria because Nigerian laws are, are not enforced strongly and all that. That said, because of the absence of government in many remote communities in Nigeria, the only government, quote unquote, they know is the oil companies. And as a matter of fact, I know that a lot of the little things those uh, communities had, schools, uh, libraries, uh, dispensaries, health centers, uh, were given to them by oil companies because there's really no government present. You know, So to that extent, the oil companies are playing a, a, a very important role in the lives of those local communities. Yeah, there are spills. Again, Nigeria doesn't have strong enough laws to hold people accountable for spills. You know, all it requires you to do is clean up after there's a spill, and then the compensation is uh, it's not it's not it's not that much. It's not enough to deter uh, future spillages. That said, as well, a lot of spills are also caused by sabotage, not just by faulty equipment. It's a complicated process. The communities themselves sometimes out of anger cost spills by piercing pipelines. But it's not most it's not just the communities, it's also what we call the illegal oil bunkers, people who are stealing oil via pipelines as well. And there's uh, those things are not regulated and it's going on on a daily basis. And the, the, the oil companies sometimes want to resist paying compensation for what they say was not cost by them. 
you know. So it's uh, nobody can monitor these things easily, given the terrain, given the, where those pipelines are in the middle of nowhere, passing all kinds of swamps and under the sea in different places. So it, it's really a tough question. I'm happy now, though, that um, a, con a, co a court in the Netherlands has said that uh, Nigerian farmers can hold Shell uh, accountable for spills it cost in Nigeria. I think a court in New York now recently has also allowed a case to proceed. Oh, sorry, in the UK, the UK Supreme Court has said, yeah, you can bring suit here. So I think slowly we might begin to see, if you like, more responsible behavior because these companies can be held accountable in their courts. Uh, and then, of course, they won't be able to get away with paying um, very small compensation anymore. It's going to get bigger and bigger because when you bring a lawsuit abroad, they're going to actually uh, determine the value of the compensation based on the actual loss. So you're not just going to give a token anymore like uh, you would have been able to get away with before these courts uh, intervened. So I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a complex uh, process. I'm probably the only one here who can get away with a personal question. So here's my personal question. Yes. I think behind Malka's question is a question of how you, Vincent, negotiated these complexities as a Nigerian working for a company, Shell, who has, as you said, a, a, a rich, complex impact on Nigeria. Look, you saw the good, you saw the raw evil, you saw everything in between and you had influence there. Can you talk a little bit about how it felt to work for a company that um, did so much good, yet so much not good, and had such a complicated perception among the Nigerian people? Was it a challenge for you, professionally or personally, to be in the employ of Shell? You know, when you work for a company or government or you always feel that you're going to be able to do your best to to change certain things. Uh, and I think uh, in one of my roles as um, in charge of paying compensation and, do, and cleaning up oil spills, we try to reform the process. I mean, this is a personal point of view now. We try to reform the process to ensure that uh, communities got more compensation than they were getting previously. I, I also, in my office at the time, we decided that the communities didn't need to employ agents because what you found was a process in which uh, the communities themselves thought they couldn't come directly to negotiate with Shell. So they employed agents who, by the time you paid them commission, had siphoned off a third of the commission for themselves. So money that should have gone directly to the communities, they first had to split it and give to agents who really did no work except appear in, at meetings on their behalf. So I think that to that extent, we were able to help uh, the communities get more money, at least they're, 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 the shares due to them, without uh, them having to part with some, to some funds to some phony agents. So I, I think to that extent, yes. Another thing was that um, if you in the, in the communities, don't forget, you, you found there was a lot of division. Again, this whole question of... Uh, poverty, scarce resources, and tensions between young people and, 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 and chiefs and, their, and old adults in the communities was always there. You know, the, so you found out that people's judgment was, was, was clouded 
by the kind of money they were going to get. So nobody put in enough effort to ensure that what they were getting was their due. So you you find a few chiefs who would rather get money up front for themselves rather than plead the entire case of the community so that the community could benefit as a whole. So he always had the selfish attitude. So it was always us against them, even in small communities. It's a tough question. Uh, when you talk of corruption, when you talk of oil spills, when you talk of communities not getting their fair share, there's a lot of factors at play, you know, that uh, kind of intervene one way or another and make things more complex. That would be my answer. Thank you, Vincent. Uh, we've now talked about the oil companies in the Niger Delta and how they've impacted the uh, local communities there um, and how that they're not get, get getting their fair share. But I'm also curious about um, how these oil spills that so frequently happen, how that is the environmental degradation. It's serious in some areas, more serious than others. Don't forget, uh, for instance, I think there's a, the Ejamai Bubus field that uh, occurred in the early 1970s that is still there and has not really been cleaned up. Well, that, that, that one is deep. At uh, various levels, I think. Um, in, the, in the case of Shell, I know that in many communities, when I was in charge, as an example, and I think that was the practice, as soon as a spill is reported, attempts were made to quickly go down there. We had local contractors in the area who would try and boom it off. You know, there's a process of trying to stop the oil from spreading. We call it booming the place and all before you go for cleanups. But it will, it will vary. It's hard to say, but it will vary from place to place, from bad to worse, depending on the area. And now that there is, it's probably even still as bad because there's a lot of illegal oil bunkering going on now with pirates on the seas and, and people coming to rip pipelines off and all. We probably don't even know the extent. It may even be worse than we think at, at the moment. Do you think there are any major benefits to having international companies manage uh, the oil industry in Nigeria rather than having it be run by local industries or like the government of Nigeria? Um, would you say there's any, any benefits there in terms of accountability or something? Yeah. Well, don't forget that uh, right from traditionally, it was the oil companies that these companies that the IOCs that had the wherewithal, they had the technology to do it. That's why they're there in the first place. They, they, they had the technology, they knew the markets so as part of this whole ongoing exploitation of uh, after colonialism, you know, the Western countries with power and resources. Uh, I don't know whether we had a choice. That said, I think that uh, what's happening in Nigeria now, in many regards, is, is more about regulation, not necessarily who is, who is doing it. Um, the oil companies now, we have uh, joint venture agreements between the Nigerian government represented by what they call the NNPC, which is the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, working with these oil companies. So Nigeria has a fair share, I think, of what's coming out of the oil companies. Uh, what's lacking is regulation. But don't forget also the NNPC itself is, 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 is just very corrupt. I know a lot of people uh, who, who moved from my company to work for NNPC on, uh, on secondment and for short periods and all, and, and come back to Shell and say, goodness sake. They don't even have any processes there, a procedure and stuff like that. So I'm not so sure it's who is doing it. I'm sure it's about who, whether it can be done properly. 
And I think to, uh, the oil companies have, if they're held more accountable, I, I think that uh, we've solved half the problem. Thank you, Vincent. Because I imagine you voted in Nigeria. Maybe if you could share a bit of the experience of voting and how political campaigning works for candidates in Nigeria. If you haven't had elections in a country for for scores of years, it's uh, it's difficult to institute a process that works overnight. We do have, there's an attempt to inject some level of uh, decency and transparency into the electoral process, but it's 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 difficult because of the of the kind of actors and the power of uh, don't forget in Nigeria being a politician is your is a, it's it's a sure way to riches, so you can imagine that the campaign for office is desperate and quite brutal because if you if you win the election then you can actually corner the state resources governors can do what they please with state funds uh, and stuff like that. So it's not as transparent as we want it to be because of the the, the, the various actors who are trying so hard to out, uh, outpace one another. So there's, um, there's some level of rigging, if you like. Uh, I'm not always sure that the, the winner is the person with the highest number of votes. I think when we started this process in 1979, sorry, 1999, it was probably more transparent. It's gotten worse now with the kind of actors we have. And, and the power of incumbency. It's very difficult for the guy who is already in power to lose the next election. Luckily, we have term limits. So you can't have a, a governor, for instance, or president uh, run for more than two terms. But if they have all that money and power subsequently, then they can influence the election, the next one. They just have their cronies. In fact, what has been happening in many cases is... Um, a governor who has only two terms, he just sponsors somebody else, maybe his son or son-in-law to be the next governor. And he has all this money and he just pushes him. Uh, so the party nominating process is not even transparent enough because I think that's the key. You know, right now you have two major parties, uh, even though during elections you have about uh, 50, 60 other parties filing to participate with their own candidates. But in reality, there are two main parties, the People's Democratic Party and the... Uh, and the APC, the um, All People's Congress. So those are the key parties. And um, I don't think the nomination process itself is transparent enough because anybody who comes out of the, as, the, as the candidate of the party is likely to win in a particular area. For instance, the PDP is in the Southeast, the APC in the Southwest and in the North and all that. So once you have a candidate saying, uh, in Abuja running for Senate that the APC picks, then he's likely to win that election. So what has gone on within the process of, of choosing that candidate is uh, it's not transparent enough. So it still needs a lot of reform, but you know it takes a while to build uh, this whole thing. You know, and, and don't forget democracy, democracy is fragile. I mean, look at what happened in America. If, you, if it was not America, recently, there would be turbulence. You know, once you have a president in Nigeria, for instance, who says, I'm not going, he's likely not going and nothing's going to happen. You know, because the army is going to back him, the police is going to back him and, and stuff like that. So it, it's pretty difficult to run democracy. Now, the other question is, and a lot of Africans have asked this, the kind of democracy we have, does it really suit us? Don't forget, we have a... 
patrilineal system. We have a system where elders and people are, if they say something, you have to go by it. So you have this election process where you have a guy who is 40 something who says he's elected and somebody, the, 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 the chiefs and elders say, well, who, who is this guy to tell us what to do? You know, so maybe we have to find another kind of uh, democratic process that is suited to Africa. We have, we run the presidential system, American style, and we don't have checks and balances. Our institutions don't work very well like they work in America or elsewhere in Germany. So once you have a president appointing an attorney general, I don't think the attorney general, for instance, can prosecute him or any of his cronies. You know, because he just, the, the, the president is all, all too powerful. Mm -hmm. So we have to build institutions first that can check corruption, that can check our elected officials and all that. But those things are not, that, are not there yet. So they will take a while to build. Some African countries are doing better. But even those that are doing better, like Botswana, Rwanda, let's face it, they have dictators. They're not uh, democracies. You know, as we like to believe, they have an elective system, but in reality, look at the president of Rwanda. He has never, he's, he's been there forever. Uganda as well. I mean, 30 years, 40 years. I mean, that's not a democracy. So maybe we have to find something suitable. But I mean, that's another question entirely. The can of worms is opened. Uh, <laughs> Vincent is questioning the premise of democracy. All of the hands are in the air. Claire. So given like what you're saying about how things are becoming less transparent and whatnot, are you, would you say overall, you're more concerned or optimistic about Nigerian, the future of Nigeria's democracy? Interesting question. As of today, I'm not very optimistic unless I see all the signs going forward that will, will change my opinion. I, I think, uh, the way things are, if they continue to to just move on unchecked, it's it's not going to get much better. We still have to strengthen institutions. I don't know how that's going to happen. Look, a lot of things that happen in politics have to do with the players themselves. For instance, when we had uh, elections in 1999, it was the military power themselves at the time who said, let's have elections. If they said, we don't want elections, no elections would have held. So we now have leaders. For instance, we're talking of restructuring the country so that we can decentralize power from the center to the states. But we have a president now who says he doesn't see a problem because he's a former soldier as well. And soldiers believe in concentration of powers. Don't forget, it's a command structure where the general gives orders to his colonel and major to carry out. So we have a former general who is now a president, and he says, ah, the constitution, as far as I see it, is okay. So clearly, he's not the one who's going to decentralize because he doesn't believe in it, but he's the one who has all the powers right now because he, the powers were vested in him. And so he has a vested interest in ensuring that things don't change. And that's the problem with those democracies. If you don't have a group of people where either you have a revolution or you have a coup or you have something, but things just don't change themselves. I think that's why I'm, why I'm not optimistic. What will make me optimistic is if I see some, some signs of change, some signs that things will, will be different. But I, as of now, I don't see them. Nigeria will be, it will be interesting to restructure it. We have a lot of groups 
talking about restructuring, decentralizing power. Now, all that, that's what you will hear now. That's what you will read about. But the actual doing of it, everybody realizes that it's the best way to do things because you have so many ethnic groups, so many tribal groups that cannot be governed centrally because our interests are not the same. For example, you see some in, in the North, I don't know how many, 70% of the children are not in school. Yet you hear a governor who tells you he's building a mosque. I mean, is that more important than building schools? But in other states, you hear the governor say, we're not interested in what we want to build is schools. So we have all these different goals, and I think everybody should be able to pursue their goals as they deem fit, rather than having a central cloak over them that says, do this and do that. So the, the way we, the, the federation is organized now does not engender competition. And then the states themselves are not independent enough because all the money from oil revenues goes to the center. And then the center distributes the money like handouts to the states. So the states themselves have no independent interest in generating their own revenue. For instance, even their tax bases. Many states have no tax base because they don't bother. They just wait for the end of the month allocation from the center. And what does this money do? It just pays salaries. It's mostly recurrent expenditure. It goes to payment of salaries. By the time salaries are paid, by the time the politician puts some in his pocket, you then know that there's not enough money to execute capital projects, which is infrastructure, roads, schools, bridges, or even industries. I mean, some states are building more there. Look at Nigeria, it's full of churches. You buy a, an old factory and start a church. So where are people, then you start praying for people to get employed, but you just destroyed the factory and built a church. I mean, so you take sources of employment away and then you replace them with things that don't generate employment. So, I mean, it's, uh, so I'm not optimistic in that, in that regard, at least not yet. I have heard you on a number of occasions, the two of them being this morning, talking about the pressing need to decentralize Nigeria. There are those who fear that a restructuring along the lines of decentralization would cause, well, things to fall apart. How concerned are you and what are your concerns for a decentralization leading to a breakup of the country as we know it. I think there's more tension now that we haven't decentralized because people are suspicious of a central government, especially a central government run by somebody of another ethnic group, especially the North. And, and don't forget the history of Nigeria is such that a lot of other tribes and ethnic groups see the Hausa Fulani as very dominating and domineering. And now we have an Hausa Fulani president who people fear more because they say the interest of these people is more ethnic hegemony and, if you like, um, um, conquering others rather than taking the general good into account. I mean, look at the top positions in, in the military, in the security agencies. They're mostly Fulani Northerners, as, as other Nigerians will tell you. So it makes us more suspicious. So I think the only way to diffuse this suspicion is to actually decentralize so that states have more power to do the things they feel they can do without depending on the center. 
For instance, in Zamfara State, there's gold, there's bauxite, there's so many things, but nobody's paying attention to these things except oil because that's the one that is there and it's coming, the money is coming to the center and the center distributes it. But if you give a state like Zamfara enough power, I'm sure they will tap that and put the Bendel state should be able to, to, to generate its own resources from the oil in its backyard. But now all the revenue and resources go to the center and then the center decides how it is spent. That's unfair. If I find oil in my backyard, it should be mine. Then you ask me to pay tax and then you prescribe regulations on how to clean up and environmentally friendly regulations so that I comply with them. But to say that it now belongs to you and you appropriate it and decide to give me a penny or two from what's behind my backyard, it's a little unfair. And I think that's what decentralization means. Decentralize everything. Federal government plays less of a role. In fact, in the 1960s, before the first military coup, it was the regions, in other words, like states now, that gave money to the center. They generated revenue and gave 50% of it to the federal government. Now the federal government generates 100% and gives peanuts to the states. They're not going to be able to function because the government in the center has very limited functions and should stick to that, which is conducting diplomacy, external affairs, the military. All the other things should be done by the states. I think that's what a lot of Nigerians are saying. So from the outside looking in, Obasanjo seems like a, a fairly positive figure in Nigeria's legacy from what I've seen historically, right? With his overturning uh, the, the military rule to an actual uh, democracy or his attempt at that in 1979. And then when he was elected and there was this widespread support for him, in 99. But nonetheless, of course, there was still very bloody suppression and um, ethnic conflicts under him. So how, how is Obasanjo perceived from within Nigeria, also from different perspectives ethnically? Uh, it depends on who you speak to and, and what part of the country the person comes from. I think Obasanjo has been a very divisive figure, uh, undoubtedly. Look, the, the military mind is in Nigeria is one that you can't reform easily. As a soldier, these were guys who over-centralized things because of this command structure. Abbasanjo in 79 handed over power, but you may argue it, it was not necessarily by choice. The momentum was there and the head of state who had taken over power, who had been killed before Basanjo, General Mohammed, uh, um, General Mohammed, Muritala Mohammed had been killed. So he was actually head of state and he had a program to hand over in 1979. So when Obasanjo took over from him after his death, I don't think Obasanjo had any choice. There was no way he could reverse that because it had already been decided. You know, that said, um, the role he's playing outside of government now, and don't forget too, when he was a military president, sorry, when he was president in 1999, after he was jailed and he became president from jail, again, this, the, the military at the time decided that he was, uh, if you like, uh, the best person from the, for the job at the time, for, for one major reason. 
um, Chief Abiola had won the won the election in '93 that General Abacha annulled and cancelled, and he was from the southwest. So to pacify the Southwest, the, the military in between decided that it was better for the president in 1999 to go to somebody from the Southwest. And Obasan just seemed like the most uniting figure. One, he was a former general, their colleague. And secondly, Abacha had put him in jail. So releasing him with uh, as much as possible, they believed, appease the Southwest. And I think it was, it worked. Unfortunately, I think that Obasanjo could have done more with the goodwill that he had at the time. I suspect that some of the things we're talking about now, decentralization and all that, are things that if he had championed around that time, would have worked. He didn't believe in it at the time. I don't know whether he believes in it now. He says he does, but that's because he's no longer in power. You know, you never know what's up with these guys. But... So I think Obasanjo could have done much more. For instance, even the issue of Sharia that arose in Zamfara state at the time when he was president, when the governor declared Sharia law in that state, Obasanjo did nothing to, to stop it, I think. He, he turned a blind eye. I'm not sure why, but I suspect that if he had uh, taken steps to say you can't do this the way it is, because we have, we have Sharia in the north, but it's not, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not in the Constitution. It just simply says you can have Sharia courts and Sharia should govern your personal life, marriage, and all those little things, but not criminal Sharia. We don't have criminal Sharia in Nigeria where you cut people's hands off. The Constitution says it's cruel and unusual punishment. But if you want to marry as a Muslim, marry four wives, that's fine. If you want to, it can govern your personal affairs, wills, distribution of estates and all, but not criminal. A passenger did nothing to challenge it. So I, I think he could have done more. So I think he's viewed more inside the country as a, a divisive figure than he's seen out, outside the country as a uniting figure. As a, that's what I think. I have a follow-up question because I have a profound curiosity about this. I want to know first if you agree with the premise and if you do, how you respond to the question. Nigerian presidents since the transition to civilian rule have, and this is the premise, have not been first-rate men. Yara Dua, Good Luck Jonathan, Buhari. These are not the best Nigerians. There are so many worldly wise, clever, thoughtful people in Nigeria. I see you nodding. So you agree with the premise. I do. Why is it? Now, look, I'm from the United States. Um, We don't always elect our best to office. Although I will say that the history of the American president is a history of some really substantial people, but recent history doesn't support that fair. Why is it that Nigerian people tend to settle for second-rate men, or alternatively, how is it that second-rate men manage to rise to the top? What's wrong in the elite recruitment process? Valid question. But I think there are no good people in politics in Nigeria. I think that's the answer. Why? Because politics is, uh, is dirty. It's dangerous at the moment. And that's why somebody had asked the question about my optimism. And I, and I said, I'm not so sure yet until I see changes. Good people don't go into politics. Politics is, is dirty and brutal in Nigeria. People get killed. 
So a lot of the decent people stay away from it. And when you have decent people staying away, then what you're going to get are the second-rate people. But even when some decent people have joined, they have been uh, thrown out. And that was the point I was making about the nomination process within the parties themselves, because it is the people that the party nominates that can stand for the, in the general election to get elected. So you find out with all the confusion within the nominating process, they don't like good people to emerge because a lot of people don't want to be challenged. You don't want a guy who's going to say corruption is bad. We're going to try and send you to jail for it and stuff like that. So in that way, they prevent the good people from coming up immediately. So how are we going to get good people involved? And the politics has to change. It has to be different. Who is going to change it on our behalf? Uh, not, not the people inside it. The people who inside it have um, a vested interest in ensuring that nothing changes. Now look at, uh, talking of selection, go back to Obasanjo. It was Obasanjo who, who selected Yaradwa. I mean, is it the right of a former president to select somebody else? But that's what he did. So he foisted Yaradwa on us. Don't forget Yaradwa, by the way, was already a governor of a, of a state. And supposedly he did fairly well as governor. But then he was, he was ill. Abbasanjo must have known he was ill. And he died in office. Now, good luck, Jonathan himself. Now, how do you want to define good man? Good luck, Jonathan had a PhD. So technically, you can say a very educated gentleman and all that. But he was a disaster as president. Complete disaster. And it's it's hard. And quite frankly, the way the country is run in, with this over-centralized system, you're going to find it very hard for a, a, a president who has some level of decency like Jonathan to function. Because everybody around him is a hawk and a crook. And he has to continue doing some ethnic balancing because he then is from the south-south. He has uh, generals from the north who are in charge, who are you know kind of like uh, flying over him like vultures. If you do this, you're in trouble. If you... So the balancing act is too, is, is, is too difficult to sustain. So you really have to be a sustained politician, military tactician like Obasanjo, and like Buhari, who just plays it according to his military game. He doesn't care what you think. Uh, and that's how he succeeds. So back to the question, how do we get decent people to participate? I have no answer to that. I think they'll have to be part of the political process, of course, but they can't get into the political process the way it is because it's just too risky and it's, it's a dirty game. It's not the kind of thing you want to go into. Well, I blame all of those uh, charismatic law professors who pick off the best young political science students and bring them into law when they should have been studying politics and running the country. But but I digress. Lily. Who do you blame for the state of Nigerian politics today more than anyone else? I mean, you sort of said, how can you blame the leadership when the position is so messed up that who would want to do it? And then when the system is broken because of the leadership, it's hard to blame parts of the system. I know like some people trace it back even partially to blame like legacies of colonialism. It's hard, I'm sure to answer, but like, who do you blame for the state of Nigerian politics? Wow, tough question. 
I think the, the, the colonialism is too far removed now to blame it. It may have been part of it, but I think again, it's, it's, it's the, back to what I was saying about the, whether democracy is the right form of, of government for a lot of these African countries where, where, that, where allegiance is paid to chieftaincy and age and, and status and stuff like that. Maybe there could be a system that, that, is, that takes this into account. But I think I, I blame past political leaders, I would say, for instance, I mean, let, let's look at it contemporarily. You know Nigeria is a diverse country with all kinds of ethnic groups. I don't know, 200, 250, 600 languages, whatever. You then write a constitution that concentrates power in the center. It's not going to work. And everybody knows it's not going to work. In fact, if you ask me, I think it was designed not to work. And that's the conspiracy against Nigeria and Nigerians by its political leaders. They make sure the system is rigged to fail for their own benefit. And I think that we can start getting out of it now. I mean, enough of the blame game, but that's what a lot of Nigerians are saying. Let us decentralize. Let us write a new constitution that gives more powers to the regions and the ethnic groups to run their affairs. Then... If they fail, you can then say, well, you failed. No, you can't blame the center, but yourselves. But then we can make our governments that are closer to the people, more accountable to the people. Now look at how far away Abuja is from the oil producing region. So when somebody in Abuja misbehaves, you're not going to get there. But if your local government chairman who lives right across from your compound, misbehaves, you know where his house is. You can hold him accountable. I mean, I don't I don't say go burn the house, but you can hold him accountable because you see him every day. And quite frankly, he's going to feel guilty if the road that he passes every day is not tired. Nobody in Abuja cares because they don't even know where that town is. They just collect the oil revenue. They've never even been there. They're, they're not even interested in going. So I think we're all to blame, but I think our leaders more than anything are more to blame because they have a vested interest. They, they can help the country work by changing the way the country is uh, governed. People say, now you, 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 the kind of leaders you get are the kind of leaders you deserve. I'm not so sure about that because a lot of times they, nobody's even electing these guys. I mean, the election is rigged. So how can you say it's what I deserve? I didn't vote for him. So how do you stop people like that from getting in? Difficult question. Malka. So you're a Nigerian who spends a lot of time abroad and I've, you know, learned several new things through your talk and we've been learning about Nigeria. There is increasing awareness of African countries in general, but I think particularly like Nigeria and like popular culture. But what are like the most common frustrations you have with the way Nigeria is perceived in Europe and the United States? Yeah. All, all Nigerians are corrupt. Not true. Because uh, they, I, I think the bulk of the, the majority of Nigerians are, are good people. And uh, to say Nigerians are corrupt, I think is wrong. Nigerian politicians are corrupt. But to paint everybody with the same brush, I think it's what's wrong. Nigerians are scammers. 
was another the 419 thing. Yeah, there are a few of those people as well, but not everyone by any means. The bulk of Nigerians are dedicated professionals. Don't forget, in America, we have the highest group of immigrants who are doctors, lawyers, engineers. Like my, my youngest sister is a dermatologist in Indiana, for instance. So we have Nigerians who are doing very well abroad. They're, you know, consummate professionals, hardworking people. So I think that's what Nigerians like to be remembered for. They should be and well-earned Hannah. Um, I think Vincent kind of answered. I was going to ask what um, he thinks they should be remembered for. But I was also interested in Nigerian culture because I know little about it. I think the only time I really see some of it is during soccer games. So maybe just if you would want to like say what you miss about Nigeria or what you enjoy about Nigerian culture. I know it's like very regional. So maybe just from your own experience. Very rich culture in Nigeria, across the country. I mean, I mean, you can imagine that it's um, varied, depending on what part of the country you are. It's uh, music, it's dance, it's uh, food, culinary taste and differences across the country. Um, what else? And now, you know, where we have um, our music industry is doing very well now. And a lot of it, I mean, there's Western music involved, but there's also a blend. Some people are doing it in uh, blending it with uh, traditional Nigerian music. and, and cool. But it will, it, it will vary from one part of Nigeria to another. Even in the Southwest, the different towns will have various... Uh, will have their own, in, 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 their own culture. It's also the dressing. You know, the Nigerian dress, the, you know, the local, the clothes, you know, it also varies for men, the rappers and, and the big uh, dashikis and co in the north. Language diversity, I mean, it's uh, even interestingly, my village, believe it or not, where I come from, it's in the middle of the Midwest Nigeria Delta, not far from uh, the oil producing regions. Uh, and that state is very diverse. You have all kinds of people there, Igbo, Robos, different sorts of people. But believe it or not, my little village speak Yoruba, what is spoken in the Southwest. And it's just amazing because there are no Yoruba people in that area. So the story is that they came from the Yoruba speaking area, I don't know, 500 years ago, 400 years ago, and settled there. So all their neighbors are Igbo speaking, but they are the only ones who speak a Yoruba dialect. So you have all this kind of diversity across Nigeria and various places. You know, so there's unity in diversity, if you like. I think the real cause of disunity is bad politics. I want to follow up on that because I'm super curious about how ethnicity and ethno-religious differences play into daily life. How aware are you of the ethno-religious or tribal background of a person you're talking to, how much does that play into your conversations? Is it very much the conversation piece? Yeah, interestingly, when we grew up, ethnicity was so unimportant. It uh, never played a role at all in our lives. Don't forget my parents were from minority, minority parts of Nigeria as well. Where, you know, so they were not in the majority groups, which are Yoruba, Hausa, Igbo, and stuff like that. So growing up, it wasn't a factor at all, but it has become more of a factor because of political division. 
and this whole issue of don't forget as as the as an economy shrinks people become more desperate for resources and stuff like that corruption grows and then ethnic division now becomes more begins to rear its head more and people now begin to talk more of tribe the man in the center is from here this one is from here if he was from here this things might change so it wasn't part of it, it was there it was subtle and it, it, it didn't make a lot of difference like it does now where it's uh, if you look at the nigerian papers it's always like why is this uh, chief of army staff from the north rather than from here why is this guy from here rather than from here and don't forget religion has taken on a whole new dimension in the world today not just in nigeria this is the whole thing about um isis and uh, is and boko haram it's not a local problem it's more of an international problem that to some extent has it has roots elsewhere but it has now germinated in nigeria as part of an international religious conflict that has read its head all, all over the world starting from the the Mag maghrib north africa the sahel is all going down and then with all these unemployed youth in, in nigeria children out of school they all have found um, um somewhere to, to to pledge their allegiances because nobody they have nothing to do so it's just easy to give a 16 year old uh, an ak-47 to go and shoot people so so that's there i i think it's uh it's it's much worse than it was when we were growing up we didn't think too much about it. it. I mean, it was there, but you knew this guy was Yoruba, but it didn't matter. I was wondering, like going back to what you said about how, you know, all Nigerians are incorrectly perceived as corrupt. We have been sort of learning, a, a, I wouldn't say totally contradictory, but a, a information sort of confuses me there because, you know, Mr. Lazar has said like, by necessity, not really by choice, all Nigerians are forced to participate in corruption like in their daily lives. And I wondered like whether you agreed with that at all. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it depends on the kind of corruption. Now, if you are talking of people, I would have my own corruption that is dangerous is looting resources uh, and depriving people of money for development by putting it in your pocket and transferring it to foreign banks. But if you say you are going to uh, an office and the clerk needs to pull your file and he says, uh, give me 50 cents there. Well, I, 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 that's corruption too, but it's not of the kind of, it's not of the, at the level that I think is so dangerous. You can say it grows from there, but my own concept of corruption is more the big one that really stultifies progress that makes it difficult for the country to move forward. That, 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 um, where people's resources, resources meant for development, for schools, for industry, is put in people's pocket. But yeah, on the, the small day-to-day, -day, even me, I mean, sometimes I give people money not because they ask, but because they do something well for me. It's it. Uh, can you put this there for me? And like, okay, yeah, here, take your transport money. I mean, so that's there. It's, it seemed more like a, a favor, you know, niceness. Even when I used to go to my grandma in those days, she'll give me three pence. For nothing, but she says, "Oh, go get my bag." Okay, here, here is three pence. Put, put in your pocket. Here. I put it in my piggy bank. So I don't know whether that's corruption. It's uh, more like gift. So we have that. So then, I guess I wonder, like, 
in the bigger sense, I mean, I know not a, a lot of Nigerians, you know, end up leaving the country to work in foreign markets and stuff. Do you believe it's like possible or like reasonable to succeed in like a big way completely honestly in Nigeria? Or do you think like right now the system is so corrupt that you can't? No, I think there are people who are succeeding. Who are lawyers, doctors. I mean, sometimes they may have to give a little money for their files <laughs> in court to be brought out as possible. But no, there, there's a lot of people who are succeeding. My my my, my wife runs a, a, a fairly good business. I don't. She doesn't uh, need to bribe people. She has to pay her staff well and, and stuff like that. But and takes a hit from time to time. It's difficult. It's a difficult environment. But yeah, a lot of people are, are, are getting on. It's tough, but yeah, probably getting tougher and tougher. But uh, sometimes they have to do certain things that, uh, that to get ahead. But they're not necessarily stealing anybody's money themselves. But but it's tough. But yes, there's a lot of professionals uh, getting on. They may not reach their full potential as they may have done abroad. But there's some people who are determined to stay. Things might be tough, but uh, yeah. I think to get really rich, of course, you if you're a businessman, you may have to do certain things. You might be running an honest business, but I mean, if you're going to interact, interact with government officials, you may have to do a, a few under the table things, but you, you can still get on, I think. Are there signs of that increased accountability are like already beginning? Like, can you already see that with the younger generation? There's so many young people. And I was just wondering, like, are they more inclined towards a more fair society and a more equal society? I mean, do most young people, um, is their goal to create a society with less corruption? Or are they just going to, do you think, perpetuate that um, same problem? Are they part of the solution more? Or will they just continue the, the same problems? Well, it's hard to say. Um, I think a lot of a lot of young people whose opportunity who see their opportunities uh, squandered uh, are upset about the way things are. Uh, I mean, if you had there uh, some months ago, sometime last year, there was this uh, march in Lekki where Nigerian youth took to the streets and, and all, you know, trying to force um, change. Of course, there are some who are in the system. There are some young people whose parents are in government now who are corrupt. Uh, so maybe that's what they have learned as well. So it's hard to say those people will be different because of what they see and what they know. But I think the bulk of the people who see that they, are, they have no future in the country and that a lot of their future is, uh, is uh, being squandered by their leaders, I think they want to change. Uh, you know, they want to change. I mean, they see the corruption. I'm sure there are some people who will wish that they were in position now so that they could also be corrupt, obviously. There must be those kind of people. But I think the majority of people where rather things were different. Because when I tell my story, growing up in the 60s and 70s and 80s and where there was less crime and you know there was more merit and stuff like that, a lot of young people don't believe that ever, that ever happened. They're just like, really? Wow, Nigeria was once like that. It was. So I think that that's really, a lot of people want to see it uh, more differently. I mean, look at the number of young people who want to leave the country. They would rather stay if things were much better. So, Vincent, we know that Nigeria aspires to be a democracy, and I think it's clear that it is as much a kleptocracy 
as it is a democracy. But in a in an editorial that you penned some years ago, you argued rather forcefully that Nigeria was facing ominous times and that it is sliding into fascism. I hope you might tell us what that argument sounds like and do you still harbor the fear of fascism in Nigeria? I think we, we see it now. It's even worse than when I wrote uh, that article, I would think. I mean, fascism is when uh, you have a reckless government that oppresses its, its citizens, doesn't give them an opportunity to express themselves, tramples on their fundamental rights, uh, siphons off their resources such that there's, not, there's none left for them. So I, I think that's what we have. And, and don't forget, when I, when I wrote that, there was even no Boko Haram. You didn't have the, the, the depth of the ethnic conflict that we have today that is, is tearing Nigeria apart. And uh, when you are tackling uh, terrorism, that's an excuse to suspend the law, which means that you have the military that acts with total impunity because they tell you, yeah, we're... We're trying to win the war against Boko Haram, so they have no respect for fundamental rights. And resources are getting scarcer. See what's happening with the headsmen. There's a lot of murders caused by headsmen across the country. So we now, the, the conflict has come full circle. You can see actually that the state is failing. The, 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 the monopoly, the, the, the federal government of Nigeria doesn't have a monopoly of coercion anymore. I mean, the, the country is run by warlords in different parts of the country. So in totality, it's uh, far worse than we anticipated. Vincent, I want to give you the opportunity to share with my students and whoever may be listening to this podcast to tell us what you wish people knew about Nigerian politics and culture. We covered a lot today but if you could give us sort of a, a summative statement of what you really wish people knew about the politics and culture of Nigeria. What they knew, uh, they were nice people, I would say. Um, yeah, interesting country, has a lot of potential. Decent young people, uh, if the politics is, is different, it could actually be a world power. Don't forget we have the, the size uh in terms of population uh, in terms of uh, education and stuff like that we're, we're a potentially formidable power but let me say that one thing that is often neglected when we are talking about politics and, and, and socioeconomic development in africa is that we're not talking about population very often the population of nigeria is huge and i don't know whether given the way things are, uh, that the, 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 the country can support those large numbers. With uh, economic resources scarcer, with the struggle for land fiercer, you're going to have more ethnic conflict as a result of that. Another thing we've got to note, uh, nobody seems to talk too much about, is our very young population. Is it 60, 70% under 20? About 15 million children out of school in Nigeria, mostly in northern Nigeria. It's a serious problem. 
I don't know whether you're going to be able to get those kind of people back into school, ever. So you can see, again, a huge recruiting ground for groups like Boko Haram. Because when you have these uh, young people who are un disengaged, unemployed, uh, uneducated, they're just going to be idle minds uh, with which people can, uh, that people can toy with and get them to, to carry guns and, and stuff like that. So I think those are the issues I would close with. Nigeria is a, is a potentially great place if we get our politics right, uh, hardworking people, good people, not all corrupt. But again, there's a lot of conflict now. And I think that uh, it's important to figure out how we can resolve this conflict. There's ethnic conflict on the one hand, then there's also religious conflict played out by Boko Haram and uh, similar groups. So that's the danger posed right now, in my view. Yeah. Well, listen, man, the more people there are like you in Nigeria, the more hope I have for it. I know that the country is stacked with splendid people like yourself. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that you took the time out of your morning to share your thoughts, your reflections, your analyses with my students and I. Though, like you, I wish we could do it face to face. And I hope that next year we can. I just really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your willingness to engage with us, to teach us. You're a good man, Vincent, and I very much look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. It was, uh, I don't know, my pleasure, my honor. I was glad uh, interacting with you guys and uh, good luck. 